You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science, and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Beyond the Ordinary. We are so glad you're here with us today. We have my friend John Merrill with us. John is a physician, but turned entrepreneur, engineer, a husband, and a father on a mission with a passion to change the future of CPR. He's doing that through his company, Compact Medical. Why does that matter? Because we don't realize this as the American public, really as the global public, but the way we do CPR today is fundamentally unsafe. It's better than doing nothing, but it is not a safe process. And John has invented with his team a much better way to do CPR for the future. So we're going to talk about that today. In full disclosure, my family is an investor in Compact Medical. So I have to share that with you, our listeners. But it's because we believe in what John's doing. We believe in what Compact Medical is doing. And we want to see the future of CPR look drastically different than it does today. So John, thank you so much for being with us on the show today. Thanks so much, Tommy. I really appreciate you having me. Well, John, our listeners love hearing people's stories. So I know as you were growing up, you never thought, hey, I'm going to just reinvent the way we do CPR. And yet here you find yourself. How did you go from point A to point B where you're trying to redefine the way we do CPR across the globe? Yeah, sure thing. So, you know, growing up, I always wanted to be an inventor. That idea was really just really captured my imagination as a kid. So I attended Oakland Elementary School in Suffolk, Virginia, and I was so geeked out about this idea of inventing something. And I didn't even care what it was. I just wanted to invent something. You know, I went and found my one friend and uh, together we founded the Inventors Club of Oakland Elementary School, right? And uh, I don't think we actually invented anything other than the club itself. But the point was I was trying my best to live the dream of, of being an inventor, of making something that's never existed before in the world, right? And, you know, it's sad but true. We don't really get there's not a lot of courses in how to be an inventor or how to be an entrepreneur. And so I did my best pursuing a career that made sense to me. My father was a physician. And so also from a young age, I wanted to be a doctor. I didn't want to be a doctor like my dad. And that was kind of, if you had asked me back when I was 12, that's the answer I would have given you. But then as I approached college, I, I wanted to explore other things, right? Try other talents, other interests that I had at the time. And that led me into government and international relations, which took me into chemistry, took me into organic chemistry, took me to chemical engineering. And finally, I hit my stride in biomedical engineering at the University of Virginia. And that's when I would say I first got those lessons on how do you actually become an inventor? How do you actually you know, change the world with something that hasn't existed before? And I remember walking into my first class in biomedical engineering 201. This is the introductory class to this entire major. And, you know, you can't look back and say that very many specific college classes were life-changing for you, but this one was. And I remember on the very first day walking in and the professor saying, we're going to turn all of you into biomedical engineers and we're going to start today, right now. So I kind of sat up in my seat, uh, definitely perked up. You know, this was the little kid in me who, you know, started the Inventors Club was like, yes, I'm finally going to learn how to do this, right? And our professor, Dr. Walker, taught 
a, a principle that has remained true in my life since then on. And I would pass this along to anybody who's saying, look, I want to change the world for better. I want to be an inventor or leave some mark in some way that's meaningful for society. And what Dr. Walker did that very first day is he gave us a homework assignment. He said, I want you to go home and find 20 problems that a biomedical engineer might be able to address. All right, go find 20 problems. And he stressed, I don't want you to look for solutions. Don't even start brainstorming about solutions. Your job right now is to go and identify compelling problems. So, you know, as I'm walking home that day, I'm just looking around. Are there any biomedical problems around here? Just walking the street as I'm, you know, cooking my spaghetti to have for dinner that night. I'm brainstorming. Is there a problem here? You know, as I'm in the shower, everywhere I went for the next week, I was trying to find problems that an engineer might be able to solve. And I would submit that to anybody who wants to get started as an innovator. Don't start by finding solutions to things. Your first task is go find really important problems to solve. Because really, to be honest with you, a compelling problem will outlive any number of solutions that you may find. We talk about building a better mousetrap. Well, why do we talk about mousetraps so much? Because rodents are a problem, right? And they have been for you know a long, long time, right? So one solution comes to market and eventually it's going to be eclipsed by another solution and another solution and another solution. And honestly, that probably is true even of the company that I'm building today. Improving CPR, saving people's lives, fixing problems in healthcare, those are huge problems that need to be addressed. And so we're chipping away at it, but I'm glad that there are other people chipping away at it too, right? If the problem you've struck on is not compelling enough, it doesn't matter how gee whiz nifty your solution is it will not survive in the market. You have to find problems that are deep, that are compelling, that move people to care enough. Those are the kind of problems that you want to be addressing. One of the things we say on our show a lot, John, is if you're thinking about becoming an entrepreneur, don't do it because you want to go make a lot of money. Sure. Go do it because <laughs> you want to solve a really big problem. Right. And that's what's exciting. So completely concur and resonate with everything you're saying there. So, you know, you have this professor that really takes your inspiration to the next level, yeah. it sounds like. And at what point did you decide full bore, yes, I am going to go become a physician? Yeah, that was partway through my undergrad. It was really just in the last couple of years of my time as undergrad at UVA in biomedical engineering when I realized, you know, I really do want to go back and go into medical school. I realized that I wanted to get close to people, closer to patients. I don't know that I had connected these dots at the time, but I realized, you know, who has a better finger on the pulse, if you will, of problems in medicine than people who work in healthcare, right? The only other people who might be able to compare are patients themselves, right? And you can't sign yourself up to become a patient, at least nobody wants to, right? But you can sign yourself up to work in healthcare and get closer to the action and get a real feel for where the holes are that need to be filled. And while I don't know that that was exactly the thought process I was following at the time when I chose to go into medical school, coming out of it, that certainly became evident to me that, oh, hey, this is a huge advantage I have now because I became a physician. I have that advantage of that insider knowledge of what really does drive patients crazy. What is it that they are missing that they wish they had? And what do my fellow colleagues in medicine wish they had? So I went to Eastern Virginia Medical School in Norfolk, Virginia, and had a wonderful experience there, great education. Yeah, but I do remember I was kind of the weirdo a little bit in those classes because I continued to ask the question. I continued to be looking for problems as I went. So I remember one day they were explaining there's a technology called the kidney pump. So if you're doing kidney transplants, 
kidneys can travel further if you're trying to get a kidney from one location to a recipient in another location, right? The kidney can travel further than any other human organ can, at least as of a few years ago. And, and part of the reason for that is kidneys are just more resilient. But part of it is we have a device called a kidney pump. You can hook up a kidney to and it'll pump fluids through. And it turns out kidneys like to have fluids running through them. Who knew? But that will keep your kidney alive longer so it's healthier when it arrives at the recipient. But I remember hearing that and I raised my hand saying, okay, so where's the lung pump? You know, if it works for kidneys, what well, can we do that for lungs? And I just remember the professor looking. And where's the heart pump? Right. And where's the heart pump? And where's, right. Where's yes. the small bowel pump? Where's the, and, and I just remember the professor looking at me confused and just saying, no, there is no lung pump. It's just a kidney pump. So you know, turn your books to page 74 and we're going to move on with the discussion. But if that gives you an idea, that was that, you know, biomedical engineering 201 mentality kicking back in saying, man, there's a hole here. I think there's an opportunity that can be pursued to make transplantation better, right? Now, I didn't ultimately choose that as my career, but just to give an idea of that's, I think, the kind of mindset that I would encourage anybody who wants to get into innovation, engineering, entrepreneurship, that's the kind of mindset that I would encourage you to develop is looking for those problems and then write them down. That's another critical thing. I have a Google Doc of just a running list of problems that I find, right? Right now, my focus is on compact medical and addressing CPR and ventilation, but someday... We will have solved that problem as best we can and moved it on. And then I want to pick up the next problem, work on that. It's really helpful if you already have a list of what those things might be that you might want to work on next. Does that make sense? So anyway, I finished my time in medical school and then went out here to Indiana for residency at uh, Riley Children's Hospital, which is the central children's hospital for Indiana. And just had a wonderful experience there. Great training. But I always knew I wanted to go back to engineering. I knew that I wasn't finished with my work there. It was interestingly enough, it was a failure that kind of tripped me into that. So compact medical never would have happened if I hadn't had a particular setback that happened in my career. And that was as I was working as a resident physician at Riley, there's a series of exams that physicians have to pass in order to be certified at the end of the road. And you have to pass your step one, your step two, step three, you have your board certification. There's an unending supply of tests that physicians have to complete in order to work as a physician. And John, just for context, what was your residency in? It was in general pediatrics. Yep. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. But there's a series of exams, no matter who you are, no matter what your specialty is, you have to complete these exams. And they're actually fairly similar across all medical specialties. And there's kind of a sense of you definitely don't want to fail an exam as you go along. Now, you always have an opportunity to take it again and keep on moving forward. But it's just a huge setback mentally and other things to you know fail one of these exams. I'll never forget the day I was on the Hemonc service. That's the cancer service at Riley and got my test results and found out I had failed. It was a huge gut punch. I had to excuse myself from rounding, had to go to the break room for a minute and just, I wanted to vomit. I was so sick because it was just this huge confidence blow. What is this going to mean for my family? We had been charging, not only the plan had been not only general pediatrics, but then my plan was to do a fellowship pretty much immediately thereafter and jump into a subspecialty of pediatric medicine and then to go full bore into being a research physician and on and on. And you can see there's nowhere in that path I just described that I would then be able to jump off and do compact medical. Nowhere. That would not have happened. So compact medical was not even a thought at that time. I was going full bore down a very different career path. And then when I failed that exam, it really, again, shook my confidence and it made me start to question, you know, am I on the right path? Is this what I should be doing? I had a really just deeply meaningful experience later that same day. So I go home, I tell my wife, we're both 
pretty bummed and crushed. One thing that I find helps me is if you're if you're in a dark place and you don't know where to where to go, you feel like everything's in shambles. You know, start where you are and make the best of whatever you have and carry forward the best you can. You know, I was still a dad. I still had my children to raise. And so I had promised my daughter I'd take her to the swimming pool. And even though there was nothing in me that wanted to go swimming at that time, it's like, but, you know, I promised my daughter I would, and I want to be a good dad. She was about four years old or so. So I took her to the YMCA and we practiced swimming. And I'll never forget that as I was trying to get her to let go of me, just let go long enough. I'm going to hold you. I'm going to support you, but you need to put your face in water. You need to, can't be holding, clinging on to dad if you're going to grow here, if you're going to gain new skills, right? And I remember I said, Charlotte, just let go. Charlotte, trust me. And I remember getting her attention. I said, Charlotte, do you really think I'm going to let you drown? I'm right here. And it was in that moment that I said that to her that I felt, you know, I, I believe strongly in higher power that I was being told the exact same thing. John, I know what I'm doing. Do you really think I'm going to let you drown? Just trust me, right? I know this was a huge blow to your confidence, you know, to fail this test, but trust me, I know what I'm doing. And it was interesting that it was later that night that my wife was the one who said, you know, we've been charging full bore, full steam ahead into this career path that you've chosen. Maybe we have this wrong. Would you give any thought to going back to engineering school at Purdue and doing some more classes in engineering? And I always said, you know what? I think you're right. I think we need to do that. And, you know, as far as the test goes, I took it again. I passed it. I passed my certifications. I'm a board certified pediatrician, all of that. And I get to take care of patients today and all that is fine. So that piece all settled out. But what that did is that really opened my eyes to say, I'm not on the right path. I need to pivot here and go in a different direction. And it was because we did that, that I had the time and the flexibility to be more creative and to even consider the possibility of taking on something like what we're doing here at Compact Medical. Well, that's a perfect segue. And first, John, thank you for sharing that. I mean, just listening to that story about your daughter and your realization that, you know, that was the same thing happening to you. I mean, that was just so powerful. And this is a perfect segue into learning more about what you're up to at Compact Medical. So take our listeners through that, ultimately what you do, but also how you got there and what was it and when was it that you saw that problem, the problem with CPR and decided to take action and solve it? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, we actually moved to Lafayette for a few months so I could take courses in engineering. And before I left, one of my last rotations before going out, I was working on a rotation at the, in the NICU at one of the hospitals in, in downtown Indianapolis. And one of my coworkers one night, as I'm on an overnight shift, and one of my coworkers was a resident physician who was doing a combined program. So she was doing emergency medicine and pediatrics together. So a combined program. And she said, we were having a conversation the other day with a bunch of other emergency physicians. And we said, as doctors, we're really great at saving people's lives and all, but honestly, we don't carry the equipment with us that we need to get the job done. Right? We have all kinds of know-how in here, but there's a certain degree of equipment you have to have to effectively do life-saving, right? You know, if I'm walking my dog at the park and somebody goes down, I may not be that much better than a lay person at performing life-saving because I'm not in a clinical setting. I don't have the tools and the things that I would normally use. And so that was what really kicked off this whole compact medical journey was that very night in on that rotation because I realized, you know, so look, if an adult hits the ground at the park and you could have one piece of equipment with you, 
the one piece you would probably want is a defibrillator or an AED, right? Like that's to jumpstart somebody's heart. That's probably the most critical piece of equipment you can have, but there's already people working on that problem right now, right? There's, you know, most malls, most airports, you know, most public spaces, you have an AED that's not too far away, right? Certainly we can improve that network. And I've got friends who are working on that exact problem, trying to expand the network of AEDs and so forth. But I wasn't ready to get into that. But the second piece of equipment that you might want to have is a bag valve mask or a BVM. And that for your listeners, uh, if you've ever seen a show, you know, medical shows where they put a mask over somebody's face and they squeeze a bag to help them breathe, that's a bag valve mask. Or the brand name that is more commonly known by is an Ambu bag, right? And defibrillators or an AED provide heart support but they don't do much for your lungs. And mouth-to-mouth resuscitation is dropping off real fast. People don't want to do it. And I want to stress really fast, the American Heart Association for lay people does not want them to be giving breaths, right? The American Heart Association right now is pushing compression-only CPR. So if you're not advanced certified, advanced trained, you should just be doing compressions on somebody. You don't even worry about rescue breaths, right? But if you are an advanced lifesaver, if you have advanced certifications like a physician or you know, a respiratory therapist or nurse, then you, in some sense, are authorized to start giving rescue breaths to patients when they need them. The problem is nobody wants to be doing mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. And this was before COVID. And certainly after COVID, people don't want to be putting their mouths on strangers anymore. So if you don't have that, you know, you're kind of stuck. You're not able to provide that ventilatory support in addition to the heart support. And so that really was the focus. The original mission of Compact Medical was, how can I take a bag valve mask and if you've seen these things, they're fairly bulky pieces of equipment. How can I take that and make it so compact that you could just have it with you everywhere you go, right? If you're a physician, you can just have one of these in the glove compartment of your car. So if something happens, you can just grab one, you're ready to go, right? That was our original focus. And with that, I went out to Purdue to take those classes in engineering. Our initial company was myself and four other guys from Purdue. So it was uh, three undergrad students and one recent MBA graduate were the ones who launched the company originally. And we went to an entrepreneurship competition. We won. We got our first, you know, infusion of a very, very tiny amount of capital. But it was really just the confidence booster that we needed to say, you know what, maybe this is worth continuing to pursue. And from there, I made the decision not to pursue fellowship in a subspecialty of pediatrics. Instead, I finished my pediatric residency and was able to do a hybrid where I work as a pediatric hospitalist and then have time to develop medical devices. And at the time, it was just nights and weekends working on compact medical. Since then, that has overshadowed and now that is my full-time job. But that was the original goal was compactness. How do we make a breathing device super compact? But again, going back to you know pivots, pivoting is one of the most important things you can do. And it can be one of the most, like it's hard to describe. I don't know the right word is here, but it can just... It can breathe new life in your company into the direction you're heading in your life. Pivoting is such a wonderful thing to do. And we had a pivot one day when we were talking with a physician. Yeah, he's a surgeon that my father used to work with, a man that I respect tremendously, Bill McGee. He was one of the founders of Operation Smile, which is a great organization that does cleft lip and cleft palate surgeries for kids all over the world. I was talking with Dr. McGee about this problem, about compactness and, and so forth. And I just mentioned to him that One of the problems of CPR is hyperventilation, okay? Hyperventilation is what happens when you give somebody more air than they need during CPR, and it can injure patients, and it's actually been found to even be fatal, right? And I mentioned that to Dr. McGee, and I remember him saying, hold on, he said, I don't care a lick about it being too big, (laughs) about the device being too big. He said, but it really bothers me 
the idea that a traditional bag valve mask can even promote hyperventilation by giving too big of a breath and that that can injure my loved one. He's like, I don't really care about the compact problem that you're trying to solve. I care about safety first. And that was a huge pivot for us as a company. We realized, you know, we're chasing the wrong problem, right? Like I said, big problems are what you're after because a big problem will outlive any number of solutions, right? Compactness. Yes. We met people who said, I really want a more compact BVM. Sure. But compactness is not nearly as important as safety. And so when was this technology originally invented? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. So Ambu invented the original bag valve mask in 1957. So it gives you an idea how long it's been around. Wow. And that's really, by and large, that's the same technology that was still being used today or at the time that you were looking at this problem saying, we have almost 70 year old technology and we have all this stuff that we moved to digital so that we get better quality control. I mean, we can think of any part of our life, even my Sonicare toothbrush stays on for two minutes because they know this is how we can drive quality control. We want people to brush until this thing shuts off. And yet, as it comes to saving people's lives with these valve respirators, we were still using technology that was done 70 years ago with the only quality control being the person controlling the bag. I will say for Ambu, they have certainly done some innovation. The devices are better than they used to be. There has been innovation in that space. But by and large, if you're looking at a modern Ambu bag today, and I say that loosely because Ambu is not the only ones who make these, right? There's a dozen other companies that make BVMs, but with all due respect, they're all essentially making the same product. You know, like you said, you're relying on the user to bring the control that's needed for each clinical scenario. And we know that that honestly is just an impossible task. So Listen, we've talked about this, John. You and I both have utmost respect for those EMTs and first responders. I mean, these are heroes. But I'm going to ask this question because I think it's really important for people to understand what percentage of the time do the professionals get it wrong when they're doing traditional BVM respiration as it's been done for the last 70 years? Yeah. And that is a difficult question to answer just because, you know, people don't go around with video cameras filming lifesavers in action and catching them when they hyperventilate somebody. But when they have done, we've looked at controlled studies in a controlled environment where they have a video camera on them, for example, or they have somebody in the room who's sitting there counting how fast they're giving breaths. In those controlled studies, it happens 80 to 100% of the time, right? Wow. So it happens a shocking amount of time patients get hyperventilated. Now that doesn't always translate to injury or to death, but we do know from animal models that have been done that hyperventilation is incredibly lethal. And we also know that out of hospital cardiac arrest, so if you are unfortunate enough to have your heart stop when you're not in the clinical setting, your chances of dying are 90%, right? Nine out of 10 people who go into cardiac arrest at home will not make it. They're not going to make it to the hospital. They're not going to make it to go home at the end of the day. The CPR will not work for them. Now, and I want to be quick to say that that's not all because of hyperventilation, right? You know, when you talk about cardiac arrest, you're talking about a multifactorial. There are many, many different things that play into that. But could one of those be hyperventilation? I believe it is, right? It's very hard sometimes to connect those dots exactly, but we know that hyperventilation is rampant. We know that, again, about 80% of the time, people are given breaths too fast. We also know that you get inconsistencies depending on who happens to be the person assigned to do the bagging 
it's going to change how much air you're going to get breath to breath. So John, it's 2022. Why hasn't someone created a way to actually have quality control through this process? I don't know. That's what we're working on. <laughs> That's what we're working on. There have been others who have attempted to solve this by making bag valve mass a little bit smaller. There are some that have timing lights and things like that. But I don't think there's any solution that's as comprehensive as what we are trying to offer with the Butterfly BVM. So tell us about the Butterfly BVM. How does it work? Sure. And I know you're not FDA cleared yet, that Correct. you're working through that whole process. So we're not trying to overstate the state of development here. We're not telling people go out and use this today. We're just right. saying this is what's being worked on and hopefully will be available at some point in the future. Yeah, correct. That's exactly right. Not available for sale currently. We're working on that. The Butterfly BVM is an all-in-one bag valve mask. So it's another thing that we learned along the way that's concerning is there are some cases where let's say a firefighter might arrive at a scene and realize somebody needs air, but they're only carrying an adult bag valve mask. Well, that's a problem if the person you're resuscitating is a child or even worse, if the person you're resuscitating is a baby, right? Yeah, we have talked to multiple providers now who've said, yep, we just do our best. We try not to squeeze as hard, but we have no control over that. And the Butterfly BVM is intended to be a three-in-one bag valve mask. So it can adapt the tidal volume that it delivers to whatever size of patient you're caring for from an infant through all, all the different pediatric settings and into the adult settings. And so there are actually 13 different tidal volume selections that you can choose from depending on the size of patient you're caring for. And so the way this would work is, you know, if you are an advanced provider, you arrive on the scene and somebody needs air, rather than having to go, okay, which size of bag valve mask am I going to reach for, right? You just grab the butterfly BVM. The first thing you do is there's a tidal volume dial on the end of the device. You turn the tidal volume to the size of patient you're caring for. You then deploy the device and you use it at that point, just like any other bag valve mask. And what it will do is restrict the max amount of air that you're able to give to something that is appropriate for that size of patient. So even if I have big hands and I'm squeezing too much, it doesn't matter now. It restricts that. So even if my manual intervention is too much, it's not going to allow that to happen. Yeah, that's by and large correct. You're going to give the same, essentially the same statistically, I should say, the same tidal volume to that patient as any other person on your crew. So from the most experienced provider to the least experienced provider, you're getting consistency in your tidal volumes across those groups. Another really cool feature about the Butterfly BVM, in addition to the tidal volume control, is our advanced model has a peak pressure dial. So most bag valve masks, pediatric and infant bag valve masks, if you pick them up, they have what's called a pop-off valve. So that's where if you just squeeze really hard, right? Rather than sending a big spike of pressure into the patient's lungs, which can pop a lung and injure the patient, these bag valve masks will have a valve that will vent at 40 centimeters of water. Usually that's the standard setting. So anything above 40 centimeters of water gets vented out the top of the device, right? And it protects the patient's lungs. Well, that's a great feature, but you're limited to one setting, right? You get 40 centimeters of water and that's it. Our advanced model of the Butterfly BVM is pretty exciting because we have an adjustable pop-off. So you can set it from 15, 20, 25, 30, 40, 60, and infinite. So I think that was seven different settings that you can select where you want that pop-off to be. And that's a big deal because currently, if you're performing you know, CPR and you're trying to control your pressures, currently the way you have to do that is with a manometer or a pressure gauge. So these are little attachments you can attach to the BVM 
And as you squeeze, you watch a little red indicator as it bobs up and down and tells you where your pressure is, right? The problem is when you're in the middle of a code situation, it is information overload, right? You're trying to control, okay, don't squeeze too hard. Definitely don't squeeze too fast, but you need to squeeze hard enough to get this pressure gauge to go where you want it to go, but don't go over that pressure, right? Meanwhile, you're not watching for chest rise and chest fall in the patient. You're not catching all of the other information that's being sent your way. Honestly, it is a task that is impossible for humans to do really well. Even very well-trained lifesavers cannot keep track of all of those different variables at once. And what's cool with this is if you want to raise your pressures, all you have to do is go click and then continue to squeeze. And now you have set that max pressure threshold higher. And then if you're still not getting what you want, you click it and you just raise it even higher, right? And so you don't need to sit there and watch a pressure gauge as it bobs up and down. I'm trying to aim to see if you can get the pressures just right. You don't have to worry about that. And the users who have done test drives on our device, they love that feature. They just love how I set my tidal volume, I set my peak pressure, I attach the thing, and I just start squeezing. And it controls, it controls so many of those variables. So then I'm free to focus on the patient. Am I getting chest rise and fall with every breath, right? That's something that you want to watch for. Is there a different wound I need to attend to? Right. Or so often you're doing stuff one-handed because like, oh, hey, I need to hand you this. Oh, sure. You know, there is just stuff that is going on. There's a flurry of activity going on in any kind of CPR situation. And if you can free up the mental space to be able to focus on what matters most, which is clearly the patient, what is happening with the patient. And you're not watching the indicators and the other, like you can just free up that mental space. Not only is it a relief to the person who's doing the bagging, but we believe it's better and safer for the patient. This is so cool. So cool. And John, I know going through this process, you've had to learn really from a fire hose, all the steps that are entailed of actually taking a product from concept to real life availability. And I'm going to oversimplify just for time's sake, but there's really this whole design phase. We have to actually design a solution mm -hmm. to the problem. And then there's this whole regulatory phase. We have to actually take that product and get it through the regulatory approval process. And then you move some part along this spectrum, you also have the whole sales side. Who cares if we have an incredible product that's approved by a regulator if nobody's willing to buy it? Yep. So give us kind of just a quick rundown of where you're at in those three segments of product rollout. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, that's the stuff that as a kid, I never could have appreciated, right? In the Inventors Club of Oakland Elementary School, I never could have appreciated I thought you just invented something and then people lined up to buy it. Like, oh, this is exciting. I want it, right? And you start to realize pretty fast that like that is not reality, right? Everything you just said is incredibly important, right? You have to not only be able to design something that gets the job done, but is it acceptable to the user? Do people like the way it feels in their hands? You know, do they have enough attraction to this device that they would be willing to leave the old one and switch over? Can you get data to show them why they should do that, right? Can you build it in a way that you can actually manufacture it and make a profit? Correct. You realize that, hey, there's a sales point at which this, it doesn't matter how cool it is, nobody's going to buy it because it's so expensive, right? And so you have to start making decisions, you know, tough decisions. Do we keep every feature that we've ever wanted to pack into this thing, or do we have to let some of those features go, right? How do you stratify and decide which features you're going to keep and which features you're going to let go of, right? You know, the regulatory side of it is incredibly important. What can we do so that we can 
you know, increase our chances of, and like we said, we don't have FDA approval yet, so I want to be careful what I say, but we can increase our chances of being able to get approved and get a device out there to market. So there's all these different features. What I would say is one, you know, don't try and do it alone. You know, sure, I may have a medical background and an engineering background, but I don't have all the business background. I certainly don't have the regulatory background. And I've got enough of an engineering background to follow and make suggestions, but I don't have the talent that I need for AutoCAD and for design and modeling the way that that needs. So build a multidisciplinary team, figure out where the holes are, what are the skill sets that you don't have, and start looking for people to fill those holes, people who have those talents, but people who also are going to catch your vision and get excited about what you're doing. Those are the kind of people that you want to have on your team. So I've got a wonderful coworker, Adam Scott. He's a fantastic engineer. When I first found him, I was like, look, I've got an idea for medical device, but I cannot do AutoCAD at all to save my life. And he's like, hey, I just got done doing a whole summer internship on AutoCAD. I'm great at it. Hey, that's how we got started. And Adam has stayed on with the company since then. In fact, he was our first full-time employee. So Adam was fantastic. Then, you know, expanding the product development team, we found a group, uh, 316 Product Development here uh, in Indianapolis. They have been amazing and they've been so good at helping to propel this, you know, technology forward. We have a regulatory consultant out in California who used to work at the FDA. She's quite talented in guiding us in that sense. You know, I never took a business class in my life. <laughs> you know, I wish I could go back to college and maybe take one fewer class in nanotechnology, which I'm clearly not doing a ton with nano at the moment, and maybe pick up one business class that might have been a helpful thing to do. So, you know, find mentors and find people who can guide you through that process. So, like, we leaned uh, pretty heavily on a, a group called G Beta. G Beta is a small business accelerator program here in the Midwest, and we did their program and just loved it. We got so much mentoring, so much advice and assistance with sharpening our pitch and sharpening our message. And what are the things that investors actually are going to care about when you go knocking on the door and wanting to talk to them. So find people who either can fill those holes or find people who can train you on how to fill those holes yourself. But you need a multidisciplinary team. I don't know of anybody who's just like, hey, by myself working in my garage, I'm going to you know, get a product all the way through and across the finish line. I just don't know that that's real. And John, last thing I want to share with our listeners, because I think this is one of the things you've done really well. A lot of people think I have to wait then until the end of 2023 before I can start generating any interest in my product. But you've done a really good job of getting out there in advance and saying to people, hey, I can't offer anything today. We don't have FDA clearance yet, but this is the problem we're trying to solve. And we hope if we can solve this problem that you'll be there ready for us at the other end of that. And you have a lot of incredible people lined up to be ready if you can get all the way through this problem. That's right. Yeah, that's actually been our latest kind of pivot from, okay, what do we need to do? And I'll quickly say, like, you learn in a business, you always have restrictions, you have limitations, right? Nobody has an infinite budget. Nobody has infinite everything that they want, right? There comes a point where you have to make decisions. What can we do when we have certain restrictions? You know, I wish we had a production quality finished product right here on the table that I could show you, but we still don't. We're still working off of a 3D printed prototype, right? And so, you know, one of our recent pivots was to say, so what? <laughs> Let's get out there and start messaging, right? Let's get out there because our prototype is incredible. What it can do, it just blows people's minds. So, you know, we just got back from the EMS World Expo Conference in Orlando, Florida, just a few weeks ago, where we showed our device to hundreds of people, you know, and they loved it. And, you know, for being 3D printed, it just blew everybody's minds. What it was capable of doing vastly exceeded anything that they'd seen a bag valve mask do before, right? And so that's kind of the next chapter is saying, you know what, I wish I had something even more polished and even more wonderful to show you, but I'm going to go with what I have. 
you know, I'm sure they'll be even more excited when it's even better. But right now, people are plenty excited about this thing just with the prototype that we have. So you got to get out there. You got a message and start lining people up so that when we do have FDA approval, we have people who are ready to purchase. Well, John, this has been incredible. And this actually moves us into my favorite part of the show where I get to ask you two questions. The first is the question everyone wants to know. And really, it's the question I want to know. And then our last question is, how can people stay up to date with what's happening with Butterfly BBM and Compact Medical? So my question for you today is, what has been the most surprising part for you of making that shift from physician to entrepreneur? Yeah. So I think the thing that surprised me the most is I had this very romantic idea as a physician. I think a lot of physicians have this idea that, hey, if I invent something, all I have to do is invent it, you know, idea on paper, hold it up on a platter, and some company is going to swoop in, you know, whisk it away and go turn it into an incredibly successful product. And it took me a while to come around and accept the fact that that's not a reality anymore. And I'll say I have talked to some of our physicians who, I guess, lived that. But I think in today's world, most companies want to see technologies that have been de-risked enough. And that means a significant degree of de-risking before they will bite, before they will want to take something into their portfolio. And so it was somebody that it was very, very, very early on. I think we'd only just launched the company, you know, a matter of weeks prior when I talked to one of the MBA students at Purdue who said, look, nobody's going to come in on a white horse and just carry this thing off into the sunset for you, you have to do it yourself, right? If you really want to grow a company, you've got to get real and dig in and make it happen yourself. And so, you know, and I would say this for any physicians, especially who are out there listening to this and they're getting excited and, oh yeah, I'm going to go start a company too. Like, do understand that there is a high degree of risk involved in this. Do understand that you're going to have to make some sacrifices and you are going to have to believe in this thing enough to make those sacrifices and to push it forward to completion because, Gone are the days, again, where you can just invent something and have somebody swoop in and go and develop it for you. I wouldn't say never, but I would say it's highly unlikely in today's world that you'll see that. And so that was a tough lesson to learn, but it's also been a fun one because it's like, okay, if it's on me, then time to round my shoulders, grab my team and let's put our heads together and go. And that for me has been so much fun to do as well. That's some sage advice. And John, to uh, wrap us up today, I'm sure some people out there listening want to stay up to speed on the developments for Butterfly BVM as they happen. What is the best way for them to stay up to date so they know when this technology is actually ready to go? Yeah. So the best thing to do is go to our website, butterflybvm.com. And if you go to the contact us page, you'll find all kinds of information you find beautiful pictures of the device and more information on how it works and everything. But if you just go to the contact us page, reach out to us, that will actually send an email to my inbox and, you know, just ask, say, Hey, can you add me to your mailing list? And then what I'll do is I'll add your email to our mailing list. And we send out typically a quarterly update email just with what's been the latest that's been happening to the company, what's been good, what's been bad, what are we learning, what's happening. So certainly certainly, when we get to that all-important FDA approval and we're ready for launch, we will be letting people know through that channel in addition to social media and the like. So if you really want the most up-to-date information on the company, just let us know. We'll add your information to our mailing list. Well, that's fantastic. John, thank you so much for being with us here today. And listeners, as always, this show can't happen without you. So thank you for all you do. Please continue to hit that five-star like and share buttons. It really helps people find us and you've just been incredible. So thank you for all you do as well, listeners. We'll see you right back here next week on Beyond the Ordinary. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. If you like this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc.com.